Thank you, Steve. What a joy it is for Mary Lou and me to be worshiping with the Asbury community this morning. I'm grateful to you, Jessica, for the invitation and for the opportunity to be back on the Asbury campus. Uh, you'll hear some of my personal story in the course of the sermon, but just to add to the bio thing here, uh, people ask me where I'm from, and because of all that you just heard, my answer is I don't know. Um, but what we can add to that is I have deep roots in the state of Kentucky, even though I never lived here. My ancestors did the survey for Boonesboro, and uh, I'm a colonel in the Kentucky militia. Uh, my father grew up in Lexington, and so whenever I'm coming back to this part of the world, there's part of me that belongs here, and I'm just really grateful for the opportunity to be present with you all during this time. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit in this place, for we trust your promise that wherever two or more are gathered, there you will be also. Yet, God, sometimes we don't get it. And so I ask, open our eyes that we might see you. Open our ears that we might truly hear your word. Open our minds that we might understand your word. And then, God, strengthen our hands and feet that we might be doers of the word and not hearers only. All this we ask in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. It was a challenging situation. The Hebrew people knew nothing about life outside of slavery. They'd been slaves for centuries. And when God set them free and set them on this journey, what did they know about survival in the wilderness? What did they know about battle with enemies? What did they know about navigating the wilderness? What did they know about governing themselves? It was a challenging situation. They were in uncharted territory. And yet, God took care of them. When they were hungry, God provided manna. When they were thirsty, God provided water. God gave them commandments that could regulate their moral life. God helped them set up a new pattern of governance in their, among the people. And God even led them the long way around so they would not face battle and dangers too soon. Yes, they had stories from their past. After all, they were carrying Joseph's bones with them. But they didn't know what in the world they were doing. So it was in this passage that Duane just read that God led the people as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God knew this was going to be a long exodus and God provided what they needed to make the journey well and safely. Fast forward a millennium. The day after the first Easter, the disciples were in a challenging situation. Many of them had been expecting the Messiah was going to be the revolutionary who would get rid of the Roman oppressors. What were they doing carrying a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane? Attempting to behead one of the Roman guards or the guards that were there from the Sanhedrin. They were ready for battle. They wanted a Messiah who was going to wage war and get rid of the oppressors. Well, the Messiah couldn't possibly be killed, could he? 
Jesus couldn't possibly have died, did he? But he did. And then raised again with an empty tomb, the Monday after that first Easter, they were in uncharted territory. How are they supposed to live now? Clearly things were different than what they had expected. But God provided guidance for them. After all, Jesus had promised God would send another paraclete, an, an advisor, a counselor, an advocate. Jesus said, I will not leave you orphaned. The Holy Spirit will come and guide you into all truth. And sure enough, on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit shows up. And over those first centuries of the Christian movement, the Holy Spirit continued to show up and gave the disciples what they needed. Freed them from prison. Gave them words to speak so that the unlettered fishermen could convert 3,000 people in a sermon. Gave them opportunities for healing. Gave them the gift of tongues. Gave them all kinds of things that would keep this movement alive. They were in uncharted territory and didn't know what they were doing, but God provided the guidance that they needed. Fast forward 1,700 years to England in the 18th century. Change was coming to that country. The Industrial Revolution was getting underway. Traditional farming practices were changing as the parliament allowed for the enclosure of land, displacing people from their traditional way of life. They moved to the cities for opportunity. And how do you go to church in a new place? The Church of England wasn't building new parishes. And so you have masses of displaced people figuring out how to live their lives. What does it mean to be living in a Christian nation in that period of time? The level of religiosity declined in many parts of the country. And so it was that many people began to experience an incredible power of faith that, as John Wesley said, his heart was strangely worn, but his younger brother had gotten saved three days earlier by saying his chains had fallen off. Revival was coming, but the Methodist revival was in uncharted territory. They didn't know what in the world they were doing. They had a few things that helped them. The religious societies of the 17th and 18th centuries were models of how to do things. But they were stumbling forward, and John Wesley discovered most of his great techniques, well, by accident. He consented to be more vile and preached in the highways and byways the glad tidings of salvation to 3,000 people outside of Bristol. The message from, that message from that entry in his journal is, never let the preacher take the attendance. <laughs> I do not believe there were really 3,000 people there. Just as when you read his stories of Gwyneth Pitt, you couldn't possibly have gotten that many people in that small a space in Cornwall. But the point being that as the Methodists stumbled forward, they figured out that the Holy Spirit was actually leading them and guiding them, and the revival made progress slowly at first, and then it gathered steam. Fast forward 235 years to today. We Christians in America and Europe are in a challenging situation. It is uncharted territory. How do we navigate social media, people? How do you do worship online? 
How do you cope with a secularizing culture where being Christian is less respected today than at any other time in American history? How is it that we cope with political polarization where each faction is in an echo chamber talking to their own people, listening to their own preferred news channels, and the opportunity for being engaged significantly with people who disagree with you are disappearing? How is it that we cope with COVID and other pandemics? How is it that we cope with migration? The fact that coming into America is no longer a, a single monolithic ethnic group, but we have people from all the nations of the world living right here in Kentucky, for heaven's sakes. We who are Southerners have coped with the relations between black and white folk for centuries. We live now with the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and segregation and racism that still means that relations between black people and white people are difficult and strained. And then you throw in Hispanics and Africans and people from all countries of the world. The multi-ethnic, multinational, multilinguistic nature of America poses challenges. How do we as Christians navigate that? Or my tribe, the Global Methodist Church, you throw on top of that the difficulties of creating a new denomination. My denomination was founded May 1st of last year. What does that make us, 17 months into our existence? I don't think anybody knows how to do this. We're in uncharted territory. The last time somebody successfully formed a Wesleyan denomination was over 120 years ago. We're charting our way forward, trying to figure out what to do. Mary Lou, my wife, has become a woman of great prayer. She prays for me daily, and she says, Scott, I'm praying that you would have courage and wisdom. I told her, drop the courage part. <laughs> I don't lack for courage. Have you noticed I'm preaching on the Holy Spirit at Asbury Seminary, for heaven's sakes? <laughs> Courage is not my lack. Wisdom is my lack. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to guide this denomination. How is it that I'm going to understand how to spend my time and my energy and my resources? How is it that we're going to create this new Wesleyan movement, this new expression of Wesleyan Christianity? God, we need the wisdom. We need to figure this out. And yet, I do believe that just as God blessed the Hebrew people in the Exodus and the disciples in the first century and the Wesleyan movement in the 18th century, God is at work here today. The Holy Spirit is active. One of my deepest convictions that I want you to hear clearly is God is at work in the world accomplishing God's purposes. We need to be able to look and see what it is that God's doing. Years ago, I quit praying, God bless what I'm doing. Every day in my devotional time, I pray, God help me be a part of what you're blessing. And so I really want to be discerning what is the Holy Spirit up to? Now, one of my convictions is that I don't know the answer to that question ahead of time. There's a deep sense of humility that says, God, you're doing things that are surprising. 
that I don't understand, and so I need to humbly look around and try and discern what are you up to so that I can align myself with what the Holy Spirit is doing. And friends, it's not on my timetable. When I was a pastor, I was preaching good sermons. I had a good heart. I had a vision for the church. And I wanted the Holy Spirit to transform the town of Prosper, Texas, right now. All the pieces were present. They had a great pastor. We were doing a good thing. And nothing happened. For two years, we were just stuck in stasis. The church didn't grow significantly. We kept running into problems. I wanted it to happen on my timetable. But what I came to understand is that God has his own timetable. And just because I'm ready for it doesn't mean that God sees the timing as right. And I had to wait. Eventually that congregation did grow. But it was on God's timetable, not mine. Friends, I'm a fourth generation Methodist and United Methodist preacher and now global Methodist. And I began praying for the renewal of Methodism in 1988. I was sitting in the right-hand transept of the Highland Park United Methodist Church during my annual conference session when our conference statistician announced that the conference had declined in worship attendance and uh, membership for another time. Our 22 counties were the fastest growing in the country, and yet we were declining. And I began praying right then and there, God, I don't want to live in that kind of denomination. I want the renewal and revitalization of Methodism. I've been praying for it ever since 1988. I've worked in the Emmaus movement. I taught disciple Bible study. I helped shape Christian believer. I was involved in Billy Abraham's uh, basic Christianity program. I was chair of the evangelism division and board of the North Texas Conference. I became a professor of evangelism. I gave my life to the renewal of Methodism. And it just didn't seem to gel and take off. About six weeks ago, I was presiding over the Eastern Texas Conference of the GMC, getting ready to deliver a little address. And it just sort of flooded all over me. God has answered my prayer. I'm now living the renewal of Methodism. Not on my timetable, not in my home denomination, but God has led me into a new expression of Methodism where God is actually answering my prayers and I'm a part of it, and it's an incredible privilege and way to be a part of that. And so when you realize that God is in fact at work and that God's going to do it on God's timetable, I want to offer you some guidelines about how you discern when the Spirit's actually at work. Because part of the problem is, throughout the history of Christianity, people have been looking for the work of the Holy Spirit and gotten it wrong. They substituted their own desires, their own reading of a situation, rather than humbly looking for genuinely biblical understandings of how the Spirit's at work, they've gone down a crazy path. History is littered with people who thought they were spirit-filled and actually were self-directed. The first mark of the Holy Spirit's presence is power. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Spirit comes. And there are times when the Holy Spirit gets poured out and we sense that the power of the Holy Spirit's at work and things are happening around us that can't be explained in any other way. 
Maybe it's an outpouring in a chapel at a university across the street from a seminary. Maybe it's another kind of event where people start praying for each other, but all of a sudden, in a large gathering, the Holy Spirit breaks out and things happen. Sometimes I wish it would happen every week in my worship services on Sunday morning, but sometimes God just chooses a time and place where power is going to be poured out. And when you experience that power, lives are changed. There's also the question of truth as a second marker. Jesus said that the Spirit will come, but it will be the Spirit of truth. Friends, there are people who believe the Holy Spirit is still speaking and is correcting the mistakes in the Bible. I want to remind you that it was the Holy Spirit that led the Bible authors to write what is written, and the Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit as two and 3,000 years ago and isn't making corrections to what he did centuries ago. The Holy Spirit does come and correct our misinterpretations. The church has misinterpreted Scripture at various times, and so the Holy Spirit does speak so that people who thought the Bible said no women should be speaking in church, that gets corrected when you realize that's not what the text actually says and that's not what the Spirit is doing. In other words, the Holy Spirit is guiding us into all truth, and attention to biblical truth is a crucial factor in that. There's also the criterion of love. I think you ought to pay attention to the various ways that the word spirit is used in the whole New Testament. And one of the powerful ones is in Galatians 5, where the spirit has certain fruit that come. Just because you've experienced power in an outpouring doesn't really mean that that was something that changed your life. The question is, is there any fruit and the fruit of the Spirit, if you want to know when the Spirit's actually working, you're going to find love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. If people think the Spirit's been poured out but there isn't any of those fruit, you don't really have God's Spirit. Oh, there are other spirits at work, spirits that divide people. Spirits filled with hatred. Spirits filled with racial preference for one group of people. Spirit, spirits that do all kinds of evil things in the world. But the spirit of Jesus is all about those nine characteristics. You also have to say that when the spirit comes, young men shall dream dreams and old men shall see visions and their sons and daughters will prophesy. There are people who are becoming more visionary because the Holy Spirit has been poured out. I want to suggest to you that there are two kinds of visions that might be attached to this outpouring of the Spirit. One vision is a vision for the world, that there are young people who see the way that we baby boomers have made a mess of things and say, it's time. It's time to address global warming. It's time to get beyond sort of the, the problems of the past. It's time to get to a new place, a vision of how the world might be different because as young people are seeing the possibilities and the problems, God gives them a vision for this is worth giving my life to, to make sure that when I leave the world, it's not as bad as it was when I inherited it. The second kind of vision 
really is deeply rooted in the Wesleyan spirit, and that's a vision for yourself. No, we don't believe in once saved, always saved, eternal perseverance of the saints. What we believe is that the Holy Spirit gives you an assurance of who you are. I find too many Christians lacking confidence. What I want to say is the Holy Spirit witnesses with your spirit that you are a child of God and that the Holy Spirit has adopted you as a precious son or daughter and the Holy Spirit is going to give you what you need. You need to have that kind of self-vision of your own place in God's life, in God's church, in God's purposes. Another mark of the Holy Spirit is breaking down the barriers. We believe that at the end of time, when we all get to heaven, there are going to be a lot of different colors of skin. There's going to be a lot of different languages spoken. There's going to be people from all nations, ages, and races. And if you really want to be a part of that kind of God movement, if you want to get yourself ready for heaven, you better start tearing down the barriers now. That means you need to reach out and build relationships across races, across nationalities, across language groups. You need to figure out how to become culturally competent. You need to make sure that in, you want to be a part of a church that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. That that promise is one that we are announcing is God's intention and we're going to live into it today. We also need to talk about obedience. And the fact that when revival really does come, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, it leads people toward entire sanctification. That in fact, there are commandments in the scriptures that God expects us to follow. Matthew 5, 48, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But part of the message we Wesleyan Christians give people is that that commandment is actually a covered or hidden promise and that what gets translated as the present imperative, you must be perfect, is also the future indicative, you shall be, you will be perfect. Friends, that means that all of us are called to deeper and greater obedience, to take seriously what Jesus said about feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, giving water to the thirsty, visiting the people in prison, that all of us are called to being more generous, to giving away more of our money, to be engaged in ministries of justice and compassion. When the Holy Spirit comes, greater obedience is the outcome. Friends, we know that God is at work in the world. We know that God is doing things in God's own time. And part of the privilege of being a Jesus follower is you get to participate in that that God has a place for you to use your gifts, that when Christ rose, he gave gifts to his people, and that those gifts mean that you have a role to play. I don't know your particular gifts, but your gift is given to you by God for the building up of the kingdom, for the, the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all come to Christian maturity. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit is working in all these ways to help you be a part of what God is blessing in the world. And yet the question comes, how do you sense the Spirit in your own life? Maybe you're part of a place where the power comes and there's a great gathering, but then how do you nurture that going forward? One answer is prayer. 
spending time listening to God, allowing God to answer your needs. Another answer is reading the scriptures, being in the word daily, not only for preparing a sermon, but also for your own spiritual nourishment. There are several ways of being in the word. My wife is reading through the whole Bible in one year. That's not my pattern. I'm a boring guy. I read Ephesians 4 every morning. But that's because I'm a hard-headed dude, and I just need that over and over and over again so that I go deeper and understand it. But my point is, what is it that's going to shape your awareness of what the Spirit is doing in your life? The other thing I do regularly is try to receive Holy Communion as a means of grace because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. I'm also trying to be in a small group for transformation. Mary Lou and I are gathering a number of other couples in our home Monday night where we're going to try to follow the beginnings of something that looks like a Wesleyan class or band meeting where we have to have somebody look us in the eye and say, how is it with your soul? These are ways the Holy Spirit is giving us grace and helping shape our lives so that we can be more obedient and faithful people. But the other part of my personal spiritual piety is I'm a guy who loves to sing hymns and who cares deeply about the texts of hymns. We're going to close this service today with a hymn that I bet none of you have ever sung. Oh, I'm sorry, a few of you have. Captain of Israel's Host and Guide was written by Charles Wesley during the revival, is based on this text that Duane read a few minutes ago. It's one that, well, I have a story to tell you about it. It was in the 1964 Methodist hymnal. And when the new hymnal was being put together in 1984 to 88, the publishing house formed a group of Wesley scholars to evaluate all of Charles Wesley's hymns and which ones ought to make it into the new hymnal. As a young, budding Wesley scholar, I got put on that group of people. And we met a number of times to evaluate the hymns. Well, Albert Outler, retired professor from Perkins, was my mentor. He was perhaps the leading Wesleyan scholar, maybe even leading Methodist theologian in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Dr. Outler had a heart condition. He carried nitroglycerin pills in his breast pocket. What that meant was that you did not want to be the guy that caused Albert Outler's fatal heart attack, okay? So every time he talked to you, you were just focused and attentive to whatever he wanted to say. So he finds me on the grounds of Perkins and says, Scott, you're going to that Wesley colloquy about the hymns. I said, yes, sir, I am. He said, whatever you do, make sure that captain of Israel's host and guide is in the new hymnal. Yes, sir, I, I, I'll do that. There was a music professor named Roger Deschner who was also going to the meeting. He did the same thing to Roger. The meeting was being held on the campus of Princeton School of Seminary, and we get into the room, and we're going through him after him after him, and Captain of Israel's host and guide comes up. I... Uh, waited for Roger as the senior person to make his pitch, he did. I then made my pitch for how this was a hymn that was a powerful expression of God's providence, of the leading of the Holy Spirit. I went through the text. I had been in England and had sung it to the British tune, but in the Methodist hymnal of 1964, it was in an unsingable 
tune that Methodists in America didn't do. Well, the guy from the publishing house had done a survey of which hymns in the 64 hymnal had been sung. They had a usage percentage attached to each one of them. He opens it up and says, this hymn has 0% usage. <laughs> and it didn't make it. I failed in the task Dr. Outler had given to me. So I have taught it, used it in class. I've even sung it to the British tune occasionally in public, but you, uh, I won't inflict that on you this morning. And then I open our great Redeemer's praise. And what do I find? The new hidden hymnal from Seedbed. I need to find out from Jonathan Powers exactly what they did and how it ended up. But the hymn is there with the British tune, and I invite you to pay attention to it. If nothing else, memorize it, because it will help you remember what it is that God's doing. Captain of Israel's host and guide of all who seek the land above. Beneath thy shadow we abide, the cloud of thy protecting love. Our strength, thy grace. Our rule, thy word. Our end, the glory of the Lord. By thine unerring spirit led, we shall not in the desert stray. We shall not full direction need, nor miss our providential way, as far from danger as from fear, while love, almighty love, is near. Friends, God is going to lead you into uncharted territory. You will face challenging situations. Maybe you're in there today. Maybe you're wondering, God, how am I going to get through this wilderness that I'm in? God, how can I possibly navigate what's before me? What I want you to hear this morning is that God is at work in your life. God is going to guide you by prayer, by scripture study, by belonging to a small group, by some other means of grace. Allow God to guide you. I wish he would show up as a pillar of fire by night and pillar of cloud by day. God's never been that clear with me, unfortunately. But as I look back over 69 years of life and 40 years of ministry, I can see that God has in fact been leading me and I trust that God will lead you as well. Believe it. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your guidance and for the power of the Holy Spirit on our lives. God, you are such a good God and have guided us so well so far, and yet, God, sometimes we don't get it. And so we ask again, help us see you. Help us know what you're doing. And then, God, give us the courage to follow you boldly, to be witnesses for your kingdom, and to be a part of what you're blessing in the world. All this we ask in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen.